0: Chapter number three of Shirley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca On the eighth of March, two thousand ten, in Copenhagen, Denmark. Shirley, by Charlotte Brontë. Chapter three, Mister York. Cheerfulness, it would appear, is a matter which depends fully as much on the state of things within as on the state of things without and around us. I make this trite remark because I happen to know that Mrs. Helstone and Moore trotted forth from the millyard gate at the head of their very small company in the best possible spirits. When a ray from a lantern, the three pedestrians of the party carried each one, fell on Mr. Moore's face, you could see an unusual because a lively spark dancing in his eyes, and a new-found vivacity mantling on his dark physiognomy. And when the reckless visage was illuminated, his hard features were revealed again, and a shine with glee. Yet a drizzling night, a somewhat perilous expedition, you would think were not circumstances calculated to enliven those exposed to the wet and engaged in the adventure. If any member or members of the crew, who had been at work and still for more, had caught a view of this party, they would have had great pleasure in shooting either of the leaders from behind a wall, and the leaders knew this. And the fact is, being both men of steady nerves and steady beating hearts, were elated with the knowledge. I am aware, reader, and you need not remind me, that it is a dreadful thing for a parson to be warlike. I am aware that he should be a man of peace. I have some faint outline of an idea of what a clergyman's mission is amongst mankind, and I remember distinctly whose servant he is, whose message he delivers, whose example he should follow. Yet, of all this, if you are a parson hater, you need not expect me to go along with you every step of your dismal, downward tending, unchristian road; you need not expect me to join in your deep anathemas, at once so narrow and so sweeping, in your prisoner's rancor, so intense and so absurd against the cloth, to lift up my eyes and hands with a supple hope, or to inflate my lungs with a barrel cloth, in horror and denunciation of the diabolical rector of Briarfield. He was not diabolical at all, the evil simply was, he had missed his vocation. He should have been a soldier, the circumstances had made him a priest. For the rest, he was a conscientious, hard-headed, hard-handed, brave, stone, implacable, faithful little man, a man almost without sympathy, ungentle, prejudiced and rigid, but a man truly principled, honorable, sagacious and sincere. It seems to me, reader, that you cannot always cut out men to fit their profession, and that you ought not to curse them because their professions sometimes hang from them ungracefully. Nor will I curse Hellstone, clerical Cossack as he was. Yet he was cursed, and by many of his own parishioners, as by others he was adored, which is the frequent fate of men who show partiality in friendship and bitterness in enmity, were equally attached to principles and adhering to prejudices. Helstone and Moore, being both in excellent spirits and united to the prison in one cause, you would expect that, as they rode side by side, they would converse amicably. Oh no, these two men, of hard, rebellious natures, both rarely came into contact, but they chafed each other's moods. Their frequent bone of contention was the war. Helstone was a high Tory, there were Tories in those days, and Moore was a bitter Whig, a Whig at least. As far as opposition to the war party was concerned, that being the question which affected his own interest, and only on that question did he profess any British politics at all. He liked to infuriate Helstone by declaring his belief in the invincibility of Bonaparte, by taunting England and Europe with the impotence of their efforts to withstand him, and by coolly advancing the opinion that it was as well to yield to him soon as late, since he must in the end crush every antagonist and reign supreme. Halstone could not bear these sentiments. It was only under consideration of Moore being a sort of outcast and alien, and having but half measure of British blood to temper the foreign gall which corroded his veins that he brought himself to listen to them without indulging the wish he felt to cane the Speaker. Another thing, too, somewhat allayed his disgust, namely, a fellow-feeling for the dogged turn with which these opinions were asserted, and a respect for the consistency of Moore's private contumacy. As the party turned into the Stilber Road, they met what little wind there was. The rain dashed in their faces. Moore had been fretting his companion previously, and now braced up by the raw breeze, and perhaps irritated by the sharp drizzle, he began to goad him. Does your peninsular news please you still? he asked. What do you mean? was the surly demand of the rector. I mean, have you still faith in that bar of a Lord Wellington? And what do you mean now? Do you still believe that this wooden-faced and pebble-hearted idol of England, this power to send fire down from heaven, To consume the French Holocaust you want to offer up. I believe Wellington will flock Bonaparte's marshals into the sea the day it pleases him to lift his arm. But, my dear sir, you can't be serious in what you say. Bonaparte's marshals are great men who act under the guidance of an omnipotent master spirit. Your Wellington is the most humdrum of commonplace modernists, whose slow mechanical movements are further crammed by an ignorant home government. Wellington is the soul of England. Wellington is the right champion of a good cause, the fit representative of a powerful, a resolute, a sensible and an honest nation. Your good cause, as far as I understand it, is simply the restoration of that filthy, feeble Ferdinand to a throne which he disgraced. Your fit representative of an honest people is a dull-witted drover acting for a duller-witted farmer And against these are arrayed victorious supremacy and invincible genius. Against legitimacy is arrayed usurpation. Against modest, single-minded, righteous, and brave resistance to encroachment is arrayed boastful, double-tongued, selfish, and treacherous ambition to possess. God defends the right. God often defends the powerful. What? What? I suppose the handful of Israelites standing dry sold on the Asiatic side of the Red Sea was more powerful than the host of the Egyptians drawn up on the African side. Were they more numerous? Were they better appointed? Were they more mighty in a word, huh? Don't speak or you'll tell a lie, more, you know you will. They were a poor, overwrought band of bondsmen. Tyrants had oppressed them through four hundred years, a feeble mixture of women and children diluted their thin ranks. Their masters, who roared to full of them through the divided flood, were a set of pampered Ethiops, about as strong and brutal as the lions of Libya. They were armed, horsed and charioted. The poor Hebrew wanderers were afoot. Few of them, it is likely, had better weapons than their shepherds' crooks or their masons' building tools. Their meek and mighty leader himself had only his rod but bethink you robert moore right was with them the god of battles was on their side crime and the lost archangel generalled the ranks of pharaoh and which triumph we know that well the lord saved israel that day out of the hand of the egyptians and israel saw the egyptians dead upon the seashore ye the depths covered them they sank to the bottom as a stone the right hand of the Lord became glorious in power. The right hand of the Lord dashed in pieces the enemy. You are all right. Only you forget the true parallel. France is Israel, and Napoleon is Moses. Europe, with old overgorged empires and rotten dynasties, is current Egypt. Gallant France is the twelve tribes, and a fresh and vigorous usurper, the shepherd of Horeb. I scorn to answer you. More accordingly answered himself, at least he subjoined to what he had just said, an additional observation in a lower voice. Oh, in Italy he was as great as any Moses. He was the right thing there, fit to head and organized measures for the regeneration of nations. It puzzles me to this day how the conqueror of Lodi should have condescended to become an emperor, a vulgar, a stupid humbug, and still more how a people who had once called himself Republicans, should have sunk again to the grade of mere slaves. I despise France. If England had gone as far in the march of civilization as France did, she would hardly have retreated so shamelessly. You don't mean to say that sudden imperial France is any worse than bloody Republican France, demanded Hellstone fiercely. I mean to say nothing. But I can think what I please, you know, Mr. Helstone. both about France and England, and about revolutions, and regicides, and restorations in general, and about the divine right of kings, which you often stickle for in your sermons, and the duty of non-resistance, and the sanity of war, and... Mr. Moore's sentence was here cut short by the rapid rolling-up of a gig, and its sudden stoppage in the middle of the road. Both he and the rector had been too much occupied with the discourse to notice its approach till it was close upon them. Nah, meister, did the wagons hit home? demanded a voice from the vehicle. Can that be Joe Scott? Aye, aye, returned another voice, but the gig contained two persons, as was seen by the glimmer of its lamp. The men with the lanterns had now fallen into the rear, or rather the equestrians of the rescue party had outridden the pedestrians. I, mister Moore, it's Joe Scott, I'm bringing him back to you in a bunny pickle. I found him on the top of the moor yonder, him and three others. What will you give me for restoring him to you? Why, my thanks, I believe, for I could better have afforded to lose a better man. That is you, I suppose, Mr. York, by your voice. Ay, lad, it's me. I was coming home from Silver Market, and just as I got to the middle of the moor, and was whipping on as swift as the wind, for these, they say, are not safe times, thanks to a bad government, I heard a groan. I pulled up. Some would have whipped out faster, but I've naught to fear that I know of. I don't believe that the lad in these parts would harm me. At least I'd give them as good as I got if they offered to do it. I said, is there art wrong anywhere? Deed is there, somebody says, speaking out of the ground like. What's to do? Be sharp and tell me. I ordered. No, but four I was licking in a ditch, says Joe, as quiet as could be i tell them more shame to em, and bid em get up and move on, or I'd lend them a lick of the gig whip, for my notion was they were all fresh. We'd ha done that an hour sin, but we are teed we a bit of band, says Joe. So in a while I got down and loosed him with my penknife, and Scott would write with me to tell em all how it happened, and daughters are coming on as fast as their feet will bring them. Well, I am greatly obliged to you, Mr. York. Are you, my lad? You know you're not. However, here are the rest approaching, and here, by the Lord, is another set with lights in the pitches, like the army of Gideon. And as we, the parson, with us, good evening, Mr. Helstone. we stew. Mr. Helstone returned the salutation of the individual in the gig very stiffly indeed. That individual proceeded. We are eleven strong men, and there's both horses and chariots among us. If we could only fall in with some of these starved ragamuffins or framebreakers, we could win a grand victory. Where could everyone be a Wellington? That would please ye, mister Hellstone, and six paragraphs as we could contrive for the babies. Briarfield should be famous, but we have a column and a half to silver courier over this job as it is. I expect no less. And I'll promise you no less, mister York, for I'll write the article myself, returned the rector. To be sure, certainly. And mind ye recommend we that them at break the bits of frames and t' Joe Scott's legs were bend, soot be home without benefit or clergy, if the hanging matter or soot be, no doubt o' that. If I judged them, I'd give them short shrift, cried Moore, but I mean to let them quite alone this bout, to give them rope enough, certain that in the end they will hang themselves. Let them alone, will ye, Moore? Do you promise that? Promise? No. All I mean to say is, I shall give myself no particular trouble to catch them, but if one falls in my way, You'll snap him up, of course, only you would rather they would do something worse than merely stop a wagon before you reckon with them. Well, we'll say no more on the subject at present. Here we are at my door, gentlemen, and I hope you and the men will step in. You will, none of you, be the voice of a little refreshment. Moore and Hellstone opposed this proposition as unnecessary. It was, however, pressed on them so courteously, and the night, besides, was so inclement, and the gleam from the muslin curtain windows of the house, before which they had halted, looked so inviting that at the length they yielded. Mr. Yorke, after having alighted from his gig, which he left in charge of a man who issued from an outbuilding on his arrival, led the way in. It will have been remarked that Mr. Yorke varied a little in his phraseology. Now he spoke broad Yorkshire, and anon he expressed himself in very pure English. His manner seemed liable to equal alternations. He could be polite and affable, and he could be blunt and rough. His station, then, you could not easily determine by his speech and demeanour. Perhaps the appearance of his residence may decide it. The men he recommended to take the kitchen way, saying that he would see them served with something to taste presently. The gentlemen were ushered in at the front entrance. They found themselves in a matted hall, lined almost to the ceiling with pictures. Through this they were conducted to a large parlour, with a magnificent fire in the grate. The most cheerful of rooms it appeared as a whole, and when you came to examine details, the unleavening effect was not diminished. There was no splendor, but there was taste everywhere. Unusual taste, the taste you would have said of a travel man, a scholar, and a gentleman. A series of Italian views decked the walls. Each of these was a specimen of true art. A connoisseur had selected them. They were genuine and valuable. Even by candlelight the bright clear skies, the soft distances with blue air quivering between the eye and the health, the fresh tints and well-masked lights and shadows, charmed the view. The subjects were all pastoral, the scenes were all sunny. There was a guitar and some music on a sofa. There were cameos, beautiful miniatures, a set of Grecian-looking vases on the mantelpiece. There were books well-arranged in two elegant bookcases mr york bade his guests be seated he then rang for wine to the servant who brought it he gave hospitable orders for the refreshment of the men in the kitchen the rector remained standing he seemed not to like his quarters he would not touch the wine his host offered him "Eat as you will remarked mr york i reckon you're thinking of eastern customs mr Helstone, and you'll not eat nor drink under my roof feared we should be forced to be friends but i am not so particular or superstitious you might sup the contents of that decanter, and you might give me a bottle of the best in your own cellar, and I'd hold myself free to oppose you at every turn still, in every vestry meeting and Justice meeting where we encountered one another. It is just what I should expect of you, Mr. York. Does it agree with you now, Mr. Helstone, to be riding out after rioters of a wet night at your age? It always agrees with me to be doing my duty, and in this case my duty is a thorough pleasure. To hunt down vermin is a noble occupation, fit for an archbishop. Fit for ye at any rate, but where's the curate? He's haven't gone to visit some poor body in a sick gird, or he's haven't hunting down vermin in another direction. He is doing garrison duty at Hollow's Millen. We left him a of wine, I hope, Bob, turning to Mr. Moore, to keep his courage up. He did not pause for an answer, but continued quickly still addressing Moore, who had thrown himself into an old-fashioned chair by the fireside. Move it, Robert! Get up, my lad! That place is mine! Take the sofa or free the chairs, if you will. But not this. It belongs to me, and nobody else. Why are you so particular to that chair, Mr. York? asked Maul, lazily vacating the place in obedience to orders. My father will for me, and that's all the answer I should give thee, and it's as good a reason as Mr. Helstone can give for the main his notions. More? Are you ready to go? inquired the rector. Nay, Robert's not ready, or rather, I'm not ready to part with him. He's an ill lad and wants correcting. Why, sir, what have I done? Made thyself enemies in every hand? What do I care for that? What difference does it make to me, whether your Yorkshire lords hate me or like me? Aye, there it is. The lad is a make of an alien among us. His father would never have talked to you that way. Go back to Antwerp, where you were born, and bred. Mauvaise tête. "'Mauvaise tête vous-même, je ne fais que mon devoir. Quand vous l'audace de peçon, je m'en moque. "'En revanche, mon garçon, nous l'audace de peçon se moquerons de toi. "'Faut un certain,' replied York, speaking with nearly as pure French accent as Gerard Moore. "'C'est bon, c'est bon, et puisque c'est la main égal, que mes amis ne sont inquiétés pas. "'Tes amis, où sont-ils tes amis?' Je fais écho. Où sont-ils? Et je suis fort de quel écho se lui répond. Au diable, les amis! Je me souviens encore du moment où mon père et mon oncle Gérard appelleraient autour de leur ami et Dieu. C'est si les amis se sont empressés d'accourir à leur secours. Tenez, Monsieur York, ces mots « amis » mérite trop. Ne m'en parlez plus. Comme tu voudrais. And here Mr. York held his peace, and while he sits leaning back in his three-cornered carved oak chair, I will snatch my opportunity to sketch the portrait of this French-speaking Yorkshire gentleman. End of chapter 3 Recording by Godega on the 8th of March 2010 in Copenhagen, Denmark